Good morning. It's uh, such a privilege of ours, to, of our family, to be here with you this morning. We have such great memories from our time uh, here at the chapel. It's from, I don't know, 2001 to you know, 2000 to 2003, I think. We stayed right here at the house next door for the last half of that time uh, while we were here. And it was such an instrumental, I shared a little bit, bit about this in the Sunday school hour, but such an instrumental time uh, in our family's lives. Laura and I were starting our lives together. We'd only been married for maybe a year or two. We came here, had our first baby, and learned how to live as a married couple together. Um, also have just sweet, I was even just this week reflecting on just how the Lord used this time in our lives. And I remember uh, one one thing I'm especially thankful to God for, for this assembly, was just the, just the way that you allow uh, younger people to come in and to begin to use their abilities or maybe lack of abilities, giftings, or learning how to uh, put those, uh, to allow young men to come and to teach. I remember in my early, mid-20s, I was here and uh, had my first, I don't know if I, maybe, I maybe only taught one or two times before I came here. And just remember being opportunities to teach on Wednesday nights, opportunities to share, to stand up and to share during the remembrance meeting, uh, to come here and to share a few times during Sunday school or uh, just in general for the Bible hour. Uh, those are just great times uh, of learning and discipleship uh, for me, and I'm so thankful for that. I remember even, I guess I had a key to the chapel. I don't know why you gave me a key to the chapel, but I, uh, <laughs> but I would come over. <laughs> I would come over nervous. I'd come over either really early Sunday morning or Saturday night, and I would I would give my sermon to an empty to an empty chapel to practice and to to uh, try to get more comfortable up here uh, at the pulpit. And so I just thank you for allowing me to do that. And hopefully, no one's lost their salvation during that time. Or no, I don't believe. We don't believe that, but uh, just thankful for the opportunity to for the to look back with gratefulness on what God did in our lives during this time at the, at the chapel, and how even since that time, for we've now been gone for I, mean, I think fourteen years, fourteen or fifteen years, you've still stayed with us, you loved us, prayed for us, encouraged us, given uh, to the Lord for us, and we're so thankful uh, to you all. Um, this morning, I shared a little bit about our ministry during the Sunday school hour, and now what I want us to do is just to uh, learn from God's Word together. We're going to look at the book of Jonah this morning. If you're not sure where that is, it's right after the book of Obadiah. <laughs> so we're going to, but here's what we're going to do. We're actually going to study Jonah chapter 4, but we're going to read Jonah chapters 1, 2, and 3. They're short chapters, but I know whenever you read a long passage, it's pretty easy to, to check out or let your mind wander. So let me encourage you, don't do that. That's what helps us understand chapter 4 and be able to learn, learn it together and apply it to our, our lives. So let me begin at Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. 
So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down in, into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. 
Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Okay, let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you again for the opportunity to be uh, here together as saints, uh, worshiping you in song and in prayer and now in your word. God, would you cause your word to go forth in us uh, that we might uh, love you more, that we might know you more, that we might be salt and light uh, in, this, in this world that you've called us to live in. God, speak through me this morning. Uh, encourage our hearts in the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so thanks for hanging with me. First three chapters of, of Jonah, and now we're going to get into uh, chapter 4. Because in chapter 4 is when we really get to the heart of the book. And we come to really understand its central message. So let's look at the first four verses. First, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? So the first thing we see here is Jonah's malicious response. This is completely the opposite thing you would expect if you're reading this letter for the first time. Jonah, he didn't go. He didn't go where God called him to go. God saves him. He tells him again to go. He goes. People repent. And and yet Jonah is not happy. You think it would be the opposite. Look at what God has done. He saved me. Now he saved others. This is great. Uh, But it's not. It's the complete opposite here, isn't it? It says what happened, what God did, how he turned away from the people. It says in verse 1, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Or literally, Jonah saw it as exceedingly evil. He saw what God had done, and he saw it as wrong. And then if you look, if you notice, Jonah actually gives us some perspective. He peels back the curtain a little bit to tell us why he didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. He says, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. So why is that? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now why? Now how does that make sense at all? So if you notice here, he's praying. Jonah is praying. He prayed to the Lord. That's what it says in the beginning of verse 2. Which I think is supposed to take us back to chapter 2, which is when Jonah prayed to the Lord before, from the belly of the fish. And he says, I knew you were a gracious and merciful God, and that's why I didn't want to go. In both chapter 2 and chapter 4, 
you have this great deliverance that God did, and then you have prayer. So first God delivered Jonah, and he prays. Then God delivers the Ninevites, and Jonah prays. But the difference is, when Jonah received mercy, he was filled with thanksgiving and gratefulness to God. But now, when others receive mercy, Jonah becomes angry, and he wants to withhold that mercy from others. And even almost like a child might say in chapter 4, he says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Just think about that. It's better for me to die than for the Ninevites to be saved. It's better for me to die than for you to save these Ninevites. He hated these people. That's what we that's really what we learn here is he hated these Ninevites. And Ninevites were bad. They were bad people. If you look about the history in general, they decapitated people, they mocked all the arm all the armies and uh, enemies who they won. They boasted of fields that were filled with blood. They were barbaric in every sense uh, of the word. Uh, yet, yet still, you see, Jonah certainly did not love his enemies here. He certainly didn't love his enemies. In fact, he hated them. So God asked him a question. The Lord says, verse 4, the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And there's no answer. There's no answer. Let's look at the next section, verses 5 through 9. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Okay, so look at Jonah, the great missionary. He he goes out, verse 5, he goes out of the city, he sits at the east of the city, makes a booth for him there. He's sitting there waiting to see what the Lord will do. Jonah is holding out hope, hope that God will still, maybe yet, he'll destroy these Ninevites. <laughs> he's already said he's going to save him, but he, he hasn't said, but it's in 40 days. So Jonah's sitting outside and he's watching the city, hoping that God might change his mind and actually destroy these people. That's, the, that's Jonah's hope right here, is that God might destroy the Ninevites. And there's even a play on words here, you notice. It says that uh, verse 6, so God brings this plant, uh, God appoints this plant that brings shade over Jonah's head. This, is, now this takes place in uh, Nineveh. Nineveh is in modern-day northern, uh, northern Iraq near Mosul, or uh, in Mosul really, not too far from where uh, the part of the world where we live in. And so it's a, it's a pretty hot place. So that plant over his head, if it's summertime, it's, it's, it's cooling down Jonah. And, it's a, and it says that Jonah is exceedingly glad because of the plant. Or he's, depending on your translation, he's greatly, he's greatly uh, glad. Which is the same word that was in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, that displeased Jonah exceedingly. 
So God's mercy on the Ninevites displeased him exceedingly. This plant uh, makes Jonah exceedingly glad. So God appoints the plant over Jonah's head, but then God appoints the worm. Uh, it's almost like God is orchestrating these things on purpose to teach Jonah something. Uh, and in fact, you see God's, you see, I mean, really this whole letter is like that. If you notice all the time, you see the word God appointed, God appointed, uh, I mean, who brought the storm to where Jonah was? Well, God brought the storm. Who appointed the fish to save Jonah? Well, God, the Lord appointed the fish. Uh, so then God appoints the worm to eat up uh, the plant. And then to make it worse, verse 8, the sun rises so God appoints a scorching east wind so that that sun beats down on Jonah's head even more, making it hotter. And then Jonah, what does he do? Well, the same thing he did before, verse 8, says he asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. Okay, Jonah's saying the same thing he said before, not learning his lesson. And the Lord asked him a question, the same question he asked him before. Do you do well to be angry. That's a question of verse 4. Now it's a question of verse 9. Do you do well to be angry? And this time he adds, for the plant. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Let me think about it, Jonah. Jonah, of course, he learns his lesson. Oh, actually, he doesn't learn his lesson, does he? He says, he says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Like, oh, Jonah, really, that's, that's your response. You, you do well, to, you want to be, you're angry enough to die. Wrong answer. Let's look at the next section. Verse 10. The Lord said. So that's so actually the first part is Jonah's malicious response, if you're taking notes. The second part is Jonah's misplaced concern. Okay, so you have a malicious response, then his misplaced concern, right? Because his, his concern is on the plant. Now this is the last section where we see God's merciful heart. And really the message of the book of Jonah. The Lord said. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Okay. This is not really that tough for us to understand. Uh, it's, he lays it out really easy for us. He says, Jonah, you pity this plant. You're concerned about this plant. You didn't work for this plant. You didn't make it grow. It was here today, gone tomorrow. It's temporal. Yet you are so concerned about this. And then, and then God, the Lord turns Jonah's eyes to Nineveh. He says, should not I be concerned for this great city? He's already mentioned it's a great city of once or twice in this book. Three days journey, walking 120,000 people, don't know their right from their left, which is just a way of saying they're, they're ignorant. They don't know what's best. They don't, they don't know what is right. So you see the compassion of our God. And that's the point of this book is the compassion of our God. And this is what God has been doing in the entire book of Jonah. Even in chapter 1, when Jonah is trying to run away from these Ninevites who he hates, he goes the complete opposite direction to Tarshish. But what happens there? He gets on this boat with a bunch of pagan sailors, a bunch of non-Jews who are going there. What happens? They all actually turn to the Lord. 
the people. He wasn't trying to. I mean, he was the worst example ever. I mean, he's probably the worst missionary you could think of. He's, he's, but everybody around him is believing. So he goes. So he jumps in his boat. He's doing. He's like, I'm running away from my God. You don't want any. You don't want anything to do with this God. I'm running from him. So what happens? They all end up believing in the Lord. Then Jonah himself. God is compassionate to Jonah. He saves him, even though he's. He has this hatred towards other people. God not only gives him a chance, but he saves him from death, um, saves him from his sin, most likely as well. He's, as, he's, as he's going into the water, the fish is God's means of salvation. The Lord is salvation. He saved him through this fish when he was dying in the bottom of the, the sea. And then God is gracious to these Ninevites who don't deserve, uh, it's like none of us, they don't deserve uh, salvation yet god is gracious he's compassionate he's merciful to them and they believe not to mention they believe from jonah's sermon i mean what a great sermon jonah preached yet 40 days and your city will be overthrown that's like eight words and yet the whole city believes everybody repents i mean i would i would die for that this eight eight words and everybody responds yeah that's and yet he's not happy at all so god is merciful he's compassionate to the pagan sailors to jonah himself to the ninevites and now you have chapter four, but then look at the end of the, but then look at the end of the letter. I mean, how does Jonah respond here? I mean, we don't even know. There's no answer. The story begs for an ending. It begs for a verse twelve here. Where is verse twelve, Jonah? You know, did you learn your lesson? Did you understand what God is teaching you here? And I think that's that's the point of the letter. I think we see God's compassion. We see Jonah's heart, which is really, in a lot of ways our heart towards some people. Uh, and, he's, and the story begs for us to then respond as well. Should God be concerned for these great cities, for these people who don't know any better, who don't know the truth? Uh, and that's what the text, and I think the Lord, is asking us. So what I want to do is take sure my kids wish I was done right now. No, I'm not done, even though I finished chapter 4. <clears throat> okay, it's about, so it's about our response to this and the Lord leaving us with this question. So what I want us to do is examine our own hearts with three heart checks here. So the first one, uh, as we look at this text, do we understand, do I understand the grace of the gospel? Okay, because this story, I mean, think about the, prodigal son story okay we think that parable is about the son who runs away he wastes all of his he i mean takes his father half his father's inheritance he runs away he wastes all his money he wastes all he throws it all away he throws his life away he's with prostitutes he couldn't do anything worse and yet the lord goes and saves him and and originally when you're first reading that you think wow this is a, a story about god's compassion for the lost son and it is sort of but then but then the older son comes into the picture, and he's the one who is all upset, right? Why is he upset? Because he thinks, he thinks his father should be given him. I'm the one who, who's worked for you. Dad, I'm the one who's, who's been by your side. I've worked hard. I deserve your grace. Uh, not this guy. Not your, not your son. He didn't say my brother. He says, not your son. Your son's gone over here, and he's... He's wasted. He doesn't deserve this. So Jonah is like the older brother, which is the point of that text. If you look, the, the whole, even the context of that passage is the Pharisees. They're grumbling because the Lord is sitting with tax collectors and sinners. 
How could he do that? How could he spend time with these tax collectors and sinners instead of with us? And the older brother is supposed to be like the Pharisees. And Jonah is like the older brother as well who thinks, hey, I'm a Hebrew. I deserve, look at who, look at who I am. I deserve your grace. And, and he's actually upset that the other people are receiving it instead. Uh, so that's Jonah. But the fact is we can be like that as well. And what the grace of God does, what the gospel does, is it exposes our own hypocrisy because, uh, because we think in the same way, in the way that we deal with others, we think we are pretty good people and God should be gracious to us. But the fact is we didn't deserve God's grace, did we? The second question is really is similar to the first. It says, do I love my enemies and truly want them to know Christ? Or whoever you would consider, maybe your enemy, and hopefully nobody. But, uh, but let's take an example of Muslims. I mean, I work with Muslims. How do you view Muslims? And then we've been back in the States for several months, and we realize there are a lot of uh, Christians who don't love Muslims. I mean, even look at the, I don't want to get too political here, but look at the immigration issue. Should Muslims from other countries come to America? Or should they not? I say, yes, they should come. <laughs> Think about it. Do we want them to come or not to come? Is it America first? <laughs> or is it, uh, or do we want others to come to know uh, Christ? But, I, but I've noticed in some, even some people come to visit us in Turkey over the years, and they will say, you know what? I'm seeing some people for the first time who I really see as people. You know, I, some, even one person one time acknowledged to me, he's like, honestly, if before this trip, I would have said, just let them burn. What a terrible thing to say. But at least he was honest and, and about his view towards, uh, towards Muslims. And I mean, our media affects that. We, think, we, we picture people in the worst light. Just like all Turks and, and a lot of Muslims in general think that all Americans are Christians they think that, they look at terrible things that are done in this society, and they think Christians are like that. Well, sometimes we can be the same way towards Muslims and people of other con- uh, people who come from other countries or who live in other countries. We just think, oh, they're all Muslims. They're all carrying machine guns around. They want to kill us. They hate Christians. Uh, I mean, there are some people like that, but very small minority of Muslims are like that. And that doesn't mean they're worthy of the gospel. They're not. <laughs> they're not worthy of the gospel, but that's the point. Neither, neither were we. They're enemies in regards to the gospel, but so are our unbelieving family members, our brothers and sisters, our children. And it's, they're not our personal enemies, but they're enemies in regard to the gospel because they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ yet. We want his love to go to them, just like we should want God's mercy and compassion to go to all People. So if you ask yourself, do you hate, uh, if I asked you, know, do you hate Muslims? Of course, you'd probably say no. But then I ask you, how do you show your love toward Muslims? Do you pray for them? I'm just giving you Muslims. It could be other people group, other uh, folks of another religion. But do you pray for them? Do you have Muslim friends? Do, have you had any in your home? Do you know what they believe, why they believe it? What's it like for Muslims to come here and to live in the U.S.? Is it easy for them? Is it hard for them? Uh, do you know the answers to those questions? 
and in one sense, it helps to humanize them. I can show you pictures of all of our Turkish friends, and it helps to see people with different eyes sometimes to say, hey, these are, oh, wow, these are just moms and dads who love their kids and want their, you know, care for them and work and just live a normal life just like we do, uh, except they're lost. Uh, but, uh, but even if we, even if they're not lovable, because not all of them are lovable, it's like, a lot of people in our neighborhoods are not very lovable. Uh, they, uh, we should want them to know Christ. That's one. Do we understand the grace of the gospel? Do we love our enemies and want them to know Christ? And number three, do, we have a, do I have a greater concern for my own comfort than what God is most concerned about? Okay, and that's what he gets to with, I mean, I think all these things is what he's getting to Jonah. Did Jonah understand the grace of the gospel? No, he didn't. Did, God, did Jonah love his enemies and want them to know Christ, to know the true God? Absolutely not. Did Jonah have a greater concern for his own comfort than what God is most concerned about? Certainly did. Uh, but then what about us? So Jonah, the, the illustration there for him is the plant. Okay, But for us, you know, what is that? And it's, uh, especially as we're back in this culture, it's just so we think about what is, it is easy to live for our own comfort, spending and being spent so that we can rest easy while the nations uh, perish. And look at places where we live where it's, uh, it's not that it's hard to live, but it's hard to have a conversation with someone who's, as you're dialoguing about the gospel, you're preaching the gospel, and you realize this person's parents were born, lived, died, never heard the gospel, their parents, their parents, their parents, generation after generation of people who've not, who they haven't all rebelled in terms of they haven't received the gospel. They've never heard the gospel. We want them to, uh, and yet we as believers, as saints, and those who just love to be together and love to encourage one another, that's a good thing that there are so many fellowships and all sorts of different denominations and different Believers all over, you know, this city, for example. Uh, yet there are so many places where the gospel has not gone forward. And I think God is concerned about that. Uh, Carl Henry, if you've ever heard of him, he had this quote that says, The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. Right? It's great news for us. We rejoice. We sing songs about it. We uh, have embraced it. We live for it. We challenge each other to live for the gospel. It's good news for us because it got to us in time. And God is concerned about the gospel going to all nations. That's what it says in Acts chapter 15. There's this Council of Jerusalem discussion. And what is it says that God is taking from among all the nations a people for his name. Acts 15, 13. So one People, God is taking from among all the nations. Doesn't matter what nation they're from—Turks, uh, Syrians, Americans. It doesn't. It doesn't matter where they're from. But God is taking from all those different nations one people for His name, who will worship Him together. The church. So it doesn't matter what nation we're from. But there's this. But there's this picture in Revelation. I think we sing about it in one of the songs. Actually, Revelation seven nine or in chapter five as well. There's that heavenly that vision of heaven where they'll be right before the throne of God, people represented from every tongue and tribe and nation, which I think is really the same 
three different ways of saying the same thing. Three different, now, even when the Bible says, you know, go and make disciples of all nations, those nations, we don't, we don't think of, don't think of like Egypt or India as one country. Those countries are made up of all sorts of different people groups, different languages, different religions, even. Uh, those political nation states are a pretty modern invention. So these are all, this, is go, this goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. I mean, how, do we even, how do we even get these different languages? Where do all these different peoples of the earth come from? Well, they were God's design from the very beginning. First in judgment, actually, at Babel, when he separated all the people. Why? Because they were making a name for themselves instead of a name for God. They were rallying together. Making, so God divided their tongues. He, he put them all in different places. He separated them out. But then, that was, but then you get into chapter 12, after he established this table of nations, and the promise comes to Abraham, who says, when God says, from your seed, I am going to bless all the families of the earth. And those families, it's the same thing. These are the different families who God has just, just started and divided all up all over the place. Now, so right away, so God judged the people and he separated them. And then right away, the promise came that he was going to save people from every one of those families. That's what the blessing means, is salvation, as it says in in Galatians. So do I have a greater concern for my own comfort than what God is most concerned about? And the answer is yes, a lot of times. Yes, it is. Uh, but I don't want to be that way. So practically, how can we show if God, if the answer to that question is, should God be concerned for this people? And the answer is yes, he should be concerned. And of course, the, then of course, it's like, should we be concerned too? Well, yes, we should be concerned about the things that God is concerned about. So practically, how can we show that concern? So one way is going, of course, going to the nations, being commended by local fellowships and becoming missionaries in other places. That's what the Lord did in our lives while we were right here. And we didn't know we were going to do that. We were doing campus ministry. We had... Before we came here, no real vision, no passion for the nations. But God, he did that while we were here through all sorts of different means, through hearing things that were taught, through reading missionary letters on Wednesday nights, through reading missionary biographies in the library. You still have a library? Through missionary biographies here at the, at the library. God did different things while we were here that made us want to go. And that's how he burdened us to, to do that. Now, others aren't going to have the same uh, either ability to do that uh, or opportunity to do that for various reasons. I don't think God calls, sends every person to go. I think that's maybe I misunderstood that years ago. That would have been my rallying cry. To say, what are we doing here? No one should be here. The lost people are everywhere. We got to go. But if you look at the, if you look at places like in Romans and other places where Paul is is challenging people to give, and we need to go where the gospel is not, he right away gives them other opportunities to partner with. That work, so that's what, uh, so that's what I want us to make sure we understand is not everyone has the same burden and calling to go to another people group like He's given us, but every single one of us should have the same burden and calling and concern for God's glory among the nations. And the Great Commission is that's for every one of us. It's just a matter of what part do we get to play in that. And that's an exciting thing to to do. We get to figure, God, what do you want me to do to help? Your, to, to see other nations who don't know you know you, to see people who have no, uh, who have no news of you receive that news and, and come to believe in you. So how do we do that? 
well. I mean, this fellowship, this assembly has always been missions-minded, I think. And that's part of the reason we ended up going, I'm sure, is because of the encouragement and the direction and the, the mindset that people, that, uh, that you all have had and the impact you made on our lives. So ways we can do that, of course, are giving, giving sacrificially. As a fellow, as an assembly, you give sacrificially already, but then pushing us to do that more individually. And what does it mean to sacrifice when we give? Well, it means to, it means that we don't get something that we want. We sacrifice something we would rather have, maybe, or we could have, in order for, uh, for others to have that or for the gospel to go forth. So giving, of course. Uh, another one is, is praying. I know many of you pray faithfully on Wednesday nights, and you pray other lots of times for missions and missionaries. Uh, one of my favorite verses is in um, there's a few different verses, but in end of Romans 15, when Paul is sharing about his his planned missions trip to Spain, he even he says, "Strive together with me in your prayers, uh, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my ministry to the Lord will be acceptable." In his sight. I just think, how many people do I strive together in my prayers with? It's one thing to mention missionaries sometimes, but how can I strive together with missionaries? So I love that. I love that prayer. There's even one in, that's Romans 15, 31 ish. And then there's in Colossians 4, uh, Paul speaks of Epaphras. Colossians 4 12 says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And I said, there can't be, I can promise you, there cannot be a missionary alive who does not want people to pray this prayer for them, that they would stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And we need that. We grow faint-hearted. We're discouraged. We can be tempted to leave. We have struggles on the field that make us, well, should we be here or not? Should we do this or not? We need, we need to stand firm and fully assured, be fully assured in the will of God. And how does that happen? It happens as God uses the prayers of his people who are sending out, commending uh, missionaries and holding the ropes for them while they're gone. So, it's, so giving, of course, praying. Another one is taking an interest in the lives of of missionaries, uh, so think about that. As you've, uh, you can't do that with everyone. You can't. I mean, I know there's uh, those many people who've been through here, through these doors, long prayer lists, lots of letters that come on Wednesday night. You can't get to know every everyone the Lord has sent. But especially those, especially those you've commended from here. Whether it's Josh and Bonin, you mentioned another family that was at the at the camp. Certainly, those. And we're in a day and age where we can get to know and be a part of people's lives. We can, we can care. We can understand what their struggles are. We can know the names of believers they're meeting with and how it's going. We can, what, what are the barriers to the gospel in their context? Or how are their children struggling? Or there's so many things we can do to partner with them and to, to get to know them, whether it's writing letters or now we can email, we can do video conference, we can do all sorts of things now to keep up with people. Uh, but I just encourage you, ought to do that. That's such a valuable thing. As us looking back from our time on the field and realizing what's been important to us, what's been encouraging to us when people have have let us know they're thinking about us and praying about us and they and they want to know what's going on in our lives. Uh, one more is serving short term. I mean short term missions, it's not just for 
It's not just for young people. It's not just for those who are college age or thinking about what they, you know, who have a gap year or something like that. All of us can find ways to serve. And especially if you have places where you're already supporting and you're already connected with on the field, to go there and be a part of that work. Figure out what the, you know, talk to those who are on the field and say, well, if I were to come for a week, is there something that I could do? Or if we had a group come from the chapel, what could we do? Is there something we could do that would be a blessing to your ministry that would help you get the gospel to people who haven't heard or a way to uh, work with believers? I could give lots of examples of, uh, of that in our context. And one more is engaging those who the Lord has brought to you. I was just prepping this morning a little bit for this time uh, and overheard the news about some Turkish coffee shop here in Cincinnati. Uh, no idea. Tur- but apparently there's a Turkish coffee called Ruya, which Ruya means dream in Turkish. Ruya. Uh, apparently there's a Turkish coffee shop right here in Cincinnati. And there's about 35,000. I mean, again, I'm talking about Muslims today. There's all sorts of people you could engage or maybe those who are already around you. But 35,000 Muslims who live right here in Cincinnati and thinking about how can we come alongside of them and again I don't recommend you know going to their mosque and having your sermon ready and you know sharing the, I was thinking about how, the, how weird that would be if a Muslim came here and just stood up and you know shared you know the message of Islam and the Quran with you right I and mean, that would be very disrespectful we wouldn't we wouldn't want to do that to them but thinking of how can we get to know Muslims how can we have some in our home Muslims are so hospitable so they love they love that what's it like Bring them to your home, ask them questions. What's it like to live? You know, have you lived here for a long time? Or what's it like to, to be here? I think that would mean so much to them and open up lots of doors for the gospel. And there's a book called The Gospel for Muslims. If you ever want a book, if, you're, if, you, have, if, you, have, if you know Muslims in, a, in your workplace or in your neighborhood, uh, it's a great book for dialoguing. With, it's not a big apologetics book either. It's more just how can, we, how can we have confidence in the gospel to save and what are ways to approach Muslims and have dialogue with them. So I found that really, uh, really helpful. Uh, so back to going back to the original question, we'll wrap up here in just a few minutes. How did Jonah respond? Now, I think that Jonah came around at the end. And why is that? Because we have the book of Jonah, right? I mean, where else would we get all these details about this, and I think he came around at the end in an amazing way. Because who would have included all these terrible details about himself uh, if he didn't want us to see those things? And of course, that's the Lord's work in him. But but the Lord, given this book to us to see how sinful, selfish we can be, yet how compassionate, loving, and merciful our God is. So I think he came around, and we have real humility and repentance on his part. Um, but honestly, the book is bigger. It's bigger than Jonah. It's bigger than, it's bigger than our response. It's even bigger than the nations hearing the gospel. And it's about God himself. Even look at the, even as the, the reference of Jonah in the New Testament, what does Jesus say? He says something greater than Jonah is here. So think about this for a second. I'm going to share a few more words. Jonah's heart, think about Jonah's heart towards the Ninevites, his enemies. He was unfaithful. And in many ways, he represented the nation of Israel's concern for the other nations. They were meant to be a light for the nations. Uh, and in many ways, both them and Jonah individually proved disobedient. But Jesus was obedient to the Father in every respect. He frequently ministered to the Gentiles, and he didn't die just for Jews, but for those from every tongue, tribe, and nation. 
When God called Jonah, he said, I'm not going, and in fact went the opposite direction. But when God the Father called God the Son to come, he became flesh and dwelt among us. He humbled himself and became like one of us and loved us all the way to the cross. Jonah thought, they don't deserve God's mercy. Let them burn and perish. But when Jesus was on the cross and mocked, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jonah said, it's better for me to die than to see the Ninevites' repentance and God accepting them. Jesus said, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'll die so that others will be made acceptable to God. Jonah looked out over the city, hoping the people would perish. Jesus, looked when he looked out over the masses, he felt compassion for them and saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Jonah leaves the gate of the city and is exceedingly glad over the plant that gives him comfort. But what does the writer of Hebrews say? Jesus went and suffered outside of the gate in order to sanctify the people with his own blood. Jesus said, no sign will be given this wicked and adulterous generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, but the Son of Man spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And he did it because he loved us. He felt compassion for people, and then he acted upon it. He died for our sin. He died for our lack of compassion for the lost, and, and particularly those lost people whom we would never even want to share the gospel. But he died not only to save us, but to change us and to make us more like his son. So praise God, his work in us is not done. So may he keep working in us, working that grace and compassion in our hearts this morning for his own glory. Just like we raised the banner during, the, uh, during our communion time, saying, hey, we've got to take up our cross. Are we willing to do this? You know, we can do this because Christ has done this. He's the one who gives us the example of how to do that. He's the one who gives us the power to do that. Right? He's the one who makes us willing to obey. Jesus does, he does all these things for us so that we might not only become these, not just be people who just love those who love us, but we love those who have never heard the gospel and we want God's glory, his fame to be known among all of them. So may he work that grace and compassion in our hearts this morning for his glory, you know, for our good, and also for the good of all the nations. So he, we can only do this by his help. So let's go to him in prayer. Our God, I thank you for your holy word. It is, um, it is so sweet. I thank you for uh, using it like a mirror in our lives when we see our own sin our, uh, not even our own insufficiencies, that's such a light word, our own sin, and our love of self, and God, make us more like your son, conform us to the image of Christ Jesus, more and more every day, as we behold him, as we look upon him, his love for sinners, him giving his life for others, God, make us like that, we will make, turn our 
lives upside down. Help us to live counterculturally. I love not for the things of this world, not for the temporal things that give us comfort, but for your glory and your fame and for uh, the people whom you have made, who you placed in all different parts of this earth. God, I thank you that it was while we were enemies that Christ died for us. Uh, so would you thank you that for your grace that was given to us in Christ Jesus. And God, we know that we need to be reminded of this over and over and over again. So I thank you for reminding me of this recently. And God, would you uh, use this text and use this time to remind our faithful brothers and sisters of this this morning as well. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.